ಸ್ತದೇಕಂ ಸ್ಮರಾಮಸ್ತದೇಕಂ ಹಜಾಮಃ ತದೇಕಂ ಜಗತ್ಸಾಕ್ಷಿಪಂ ನಮಃ ಸದೇಕಂ ನಿಧಾನ ನಿರಾಲಂಬಮೀಶಂ ಭವಾಧಿಪೋತ ಶರಣ್ಯಂ ವ್ರಜಾಮಃ On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship, to that alone the witness of the universe do we bow, to that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of samsara, do we come for refuge om peace 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 good morning we can say that the date september 11 is burned into the collective consciousness of the world at the present time and it will be remembered for a long time in 200 years that date will still be remembered but not for some paltry and horrible acts of terrorism performed in 2001 but this was the day september 11 1893 when swami vivekananda stepped onto the world stage at the world's parliament of religions in chicago he didn't leave that stage until the 4th of july 1902 that was just under 9 years later and in these 9 years what did he do he gave a hard shove to the evolution of humanity i think it is too recent in time to really judge the results of his work to really understand what he accomplished in those few short years he worked incessantly powerfully and he quickly spent what energy he had to spend both here in america and in europe and also in india i expect he will be found in the coming centuries to be one of the pivotal pivotal figures in the history of the world make marking the evolution of humanity and society towards harmony tolerance acceptance and spiritual growth so most of us i expect know that swami ji swami vivekananda attended the parliament of religions and how he stole the show and the sisters and brothers of america and all that but there's quite a lot to know about it and it's a very inspiring study so today i'd like to uh, talk a little bit about the parliament and swami ji's part in it and especially to examine his address on hinduism which he delivered on the 19th of september and we get a glimpse by studying these works we get a glimpse of his his spiritual power his mission and his heroism <coughs> the parliament of religions was a part of the world's columbian exposition or world's fair which was held in 1893 in chicago it was to be the it was considered the 400th uh anniversary of uh, columbus quote unquote discovering america and uh it was to uh, show because 1492 so this was uh, 1892 1893 actually it took place and it was uh, to showcase human progress it was a huge exhibition exhibiting a bit of everything imagine- imaginable there were nearly 200 buildings built on 600 acres most of those buildings were temporary buildings there were canals dug and lagoons and Uh, 46 different countries of the world participated uh, having different pavilions dedicated to their country and their the achievements of their countries and there were nearly 26 million visitors 
on the biggest day, they had over 700,000 visitors. Just think, Washington, D.C. doesn't have 700,000 in population. So in 1893, on one day, 700,000 people visited this exhibition, this World's Columbian Exhibition. They had electric light, the world's first Ferris wheel. Henry Ford saw an internal combustion engine at the Columbian Exposition and got the idea for his horseless carriage. So it was a very important and enormously influential phenomenon. There were also a number of congresses, means scholars and thinkers and other people would gather together and discuss various topics in fields of science, history, literature, women's rights, medicine, and so on. And, of course, today the most memorable of these congresses is the Congress of Religions, which also was called the Parliament of Religions. It was two and a half years in the planning, and some 10,000 letters were sent out, which in those days means, uh, I don't even know if they had a typewriter yet. Maybe they had a kind of primitive typewriter and... uh, Maybe they were written by hand, I'm not sure. So it was a big event. Then this news, of course, came to India also, and Swami Vivekananda came to know about the parliament. Some of his disciples told him about it and wanted him to go as a representative of Hinduism. His disciples in Madras, as well as the Maharaja of Khetri, raised funds in order to send him. But he had some doubt whether he should go. He couldn't make up his mind, although some funds had been raised. And then he had a dream. He had a dream of his master, Sri Ramakrishna, walking from the seashore into the waters of the ocean and beckoning Swamiji to follow him. So this was a kind of, he looked on this as a kind of divine command. But still, he wasn't quite convinced. So he wrote to Sri Sarada Devi, the Holy Mother, and asked whether she should go, he, he should go, and she wrote back, yes, this is, gave her blessings and indicated that he should go. Then his doubts were removed. Of course, Holy Mother herself had had a vision of Sri Ramakrishna entering the Ganges and dissolving into it dissolving into the waters of the Ganges, and then Naren, the Swami Vivekananda, coming and taking up handfuls of that water and scattering and sprinkling it over vast multitudes of people, setting them free, and shouting, Jai Ramakrishna. So having that vision, she also understood Vivekananda's role to play. So Swamiji became convinced that this was his destiny. And that reminds me of a very nice uh, quote, a reminiscence of one K.S. Ramaswami Shastri, who met Swamiji twice, once in Madras in 1892, and again in Madras in 1897. And he, he remarks, the difference that I noticed between Vivekananda of 1892 and Vivekananda of 1897, was what struck me most. In 1892, he looked like one who had a tryst with destiny and was not quite sure when or where or how he was to keep that tryst. But in 1897, he looked like one who had kept that tryst with destiny, who clearly knew his mission and who was confident about its fulfillment. He walked with steady and unfaltering steps and went along his predestined path, issuing commands and being sure of loyal obedience. So even before Swamiji left, it seems he understood that uh, this was something for him. He told Swami Turiyananda, it sounds rather surprising, he told Swami Turiyananda about the preparations going on for the parliament, Haribhai, I am going to America. Whatever you hear of as happening there is all for this, striking his chest. 
For this alone, everything is being arranged. So Swamiji set sail from Bombay on the 31st of May, 1893. Now the parliament itself was inspired by one lawyer, a devout man, Charles Bonney. And the main organizer was one Reverend John Henry Barrows. It was, at that time, a very controversial thing to do, to bring different religions together. The Christians felt that Christianity is the only, many felt that Christianity is the only true religion. Why should we invite people of other religions? That's giving them respect they don't deserve because they're not true religion. Ours is the only true religion. And uh, some people also refused to attend. Some religious dignitaries refused to attend the parliament for that reason. The motives for this parliament were actually mixed. Charles Bonney was a very liberal person, and he had noble motives. He wrote about it. If the great religious faiths could be brought into relations of friendly intercourse, many points of sympathy and union would be found, and the coming unity of mankind in the love of God and the service of man be greatly facilitated and advanced. And Swamiji also liked this Charles Bonney. He said about him, Think of that mind that planned and carried out with great success that gigantic undertaking, and he no clergyman, a lawyer presiding over the dignitaries of all the churches, the sweet, learned, patient Mr. Bonney, with all his soul speaking through his bright eyes. But uh, many of the people, including Barrows, had a we could almost say a sinister motive, a mistaken motive. They thought that when all the religions were gathered together, Christianity would be clearly the best and most noble religion and would triumph, as it were. So Swamiji actually talks about this. He says, The parliament of religions was organized with the intention of proving the superiority of the Christian religion over other forms of faith. But... The philosophic religion of Hinduism was able to maintain its position notwithstanding. And another time he said, The parliament of religions, as it seems to me, was intended for a heathen show before the world, but it turned out that the heathens had the upper hand and made it a Christian show all around. The Chicago parliament was a tremendous success for India and Indian thought. It helped on the tide of Vedanta, which is flooding the world. There was a lot of ignorance about Hinduism and uh, other faiths. For instance, it was widely believed that Hindu mothers threw their children to the crocodiles, and Swamiji had to answer to that question many times. Once he, he got really fed up, he said, Oh, yes, madam, my mother threw me to the crocodiles too, but they didn't like me, so they spat me out. <laughs> the parliament was conducted in the, what is now the Art Institute of Chicago. It was built for the dual purpose of becoming a museum and also for serving as the venue for the congresses. Uh, for the different congresses, including the Parliament of Religions. There were two large halls. Each could seat 3,000 people and have, have at least 1,000 more standing room. And uh, as the date for the Parliament approached, there was a lot of discussion and articles in the press. So on the opening day, the uh, hall was absolutely jam-packed with people sitting, standing, no extra room. And the delegates formed a wonderfully diverse group. There were men and women from America, of course, numerous countries of Europe, including Russia, Africa, Japan, China, India, New Zealand. And it was a panoply of colors, of different robes, different hairstyles, different beards, hats and turbans, a lot of pomp about 60 people on the platform that opening day. And as we read in the newspaper reports, there was one very young monk clad in golden 
robes who caught everyone's attention. Just 30 years old, he had never before spoken in public, and yet he looked, as Sri Ramakrishna used to say, like an unsheathed sword. In the morning, the president of the Congress, Charles Bonney, read an address of welcome to the delegates, and six other American delegates uh, read also addresses of welcome to the others. And then the delegates, by turn, responded to these addresses. We can read a little from Bonnie's address. It was also a beautiful message of harmony. When the religious faiths of the world recognize each other as brothers, children of one father, whom all profess to love and serve, then, and not till then, will the nations of the earth yield to the spirit of concord and learn war no more. We meet on the mountain height of absolute respect for the religious convictions of each other and an earnest desire for a better knowledge of the consolations which other forms of faith than our own offer to their devotees. In this Congress, each system of religion stands by itself in its own perfect integrity, uncompromised in any degree by its relation to any other. So really, he had a very liberal outlook. And most of the delegates were received with cheering. It was a very festive occasion, cheering and waving of handkerchiefs and all that kind of thing. In the morning session, there were ten responses to this address of welcome, and Swamiji had also, was also asked to uh, approach the uh, lectern and speak, but he was feeling terribly nervous. His tongue dried up, and he didn't speak in the morning session. And in the afternoon session, again, uh, he was asked to go, and one French pastor, uh, one Mr. Mori, who had also addressed the con- had addressed the parliament, he was sitting beside Swamiji, and he urged him, go on, go on. So then Swamiji uh, finally got up and went. And we'll read from a letter he wrote to Alasinga, one of his Madrasi disciples, about what he wrote about it. On the morning of the opening of the parliament... We all assembled in a building called the Art Palace. There was a grand procession, and we were all marshaled onto the platform. Imagine a hall below and a huge gallery above, packed with six or seven thousand men and women, representing the best culture of the country, and on the platform learned men of all the nations of the earth. And I, who never spoke in public in my life, to address this august assemblage, It was opened in great form with music and ceremony and speeches. Then the delegates were introduced one by one, and they stepped up and spoke. Of course, my heart was fluttering, and my tongue nearly dried up. I was so nervous and could not venture to speak in the morning. Mazumdar made a nice speech, Chakravarti a nicer one, and they were much applauded. They were all prepared and came with ready-made speeches. I was a fool and had none but bowed down to Devi Saraswati and stepped up, and Dr. Barrows introduced me. I made a short speech. I addressed the assembly as Sisters and Brothers of America. A deafening applause of two minutes followed, and then I proceeded. And when it was finished, I sat down almost exhausted with emotion. The next day, all the papers announced that my speech was the hit of the day and I became known to the whole of America. A number of reports uh, corroborate that Swamiji, after his opening statement, received a standing ovation of several minutes. We realize that it was not simply his words, sisters and brothers of America, because there were many such brotherly sentiments expressed from the platform that day, it must have been something more. His, for Swamiji, these were not mere words. And they could feel it, that it was really 
his own sisters and brothers whom he was addressing. There was some unseen power manifesting through his words that touched the hearts of all in that uh, assemblage. One Mrs. Blodgett, who much later in 1900 became the Swami's hostess in Los Angeles, had attended the parliament, and she said about it, I was at the Parliament of Religions in Chicago in 1893 when that young man got up and said, Sisters and brothers of America, 4,000 people rose to their feet as a tribute to something they knew not what. When it was over, I saw scores of women walking over the benches to get near him, and I said to myself, Well, my lad, if you can resist that onslaught, you are indeed a god. And he could resist it. He could resist it. I'd like to read the, tec- the, uh, the whole text of his opening address, although many of us have read it. But then I found when we were taking up this study in North Carolina that many people hadn't read it also. So I'd like to read out the whole text of this first address. And I'm reading a, a slightly expanded version Mary Louise Burke had taken some newspaper reports and found that the uh, version in the complete works, which is taken from the official report of the Parliament of Religions, has been slightly edited. So it's a little bit expanded. So after the applause died down, Swamiji continued, It fills my heart with joy unspeakable, to rise in response to the grand words of welcome given to us by you. I thank you in the name of the most ancient order of monks the world has ever seen, of which Gautama was only a member. I thank you in the name of the mother of religions, of which Buddhism and Jainism are but branches. And I thank you finally in the name of the millions and millions of Hindu people of all castes and sects. My thanks also to some of the speakers on the platform who have told you that these different men from far-off nations will bear to the different lands the idea of toleration, which they may see here. My thanks to them for this idea. I am proud to belong to a religion which has taught the world both tolerance and universal acceptance. We believe not only in universal tolerance, but we accept all religions to be true. I am proud to tell you that I belong to a religion in whose sacred language, the Sanskrit, the word exclusion is untranslatable. I am proud to belong to a nation which has sheltered the persecuted and the refugees of all religions and all nations of the earth. I am proud to tell you that we have gathered in our bosom the purest remnant of the Israelites, a remnant of which came to southern India and took refuge with us in the very years in which their holy temple was shattered to pieces by Roman tyranny. I am proud to belong to the religion which has sheltered and is still fostering the remnant of the grand Zoroastrian nation. I will quote to you, brothers, a few lines from a hymn which every Hindu child repeats every day. I feel that the very spirit of this hymn which I remember to have repeated from my earliest boyhood, which is every day repeated by millions and millions of men in India, has at last come to be realized. As the different streams, having their sources in different places, all mingle their waters in the sea, O Lord, so the different paths which men take through different tendencies, various though they appear, crooked or straight, all lead to Thee. The present convention, which is one of the most august assemblies ever held, is in itself an indication, a declaration to the world of the wonderful doctrine preached in the Gita. Whosoever comes to me, through whatsoever form, I reach him. All are struggling through paths that in the end always lead to me. Sectarianism, bigotry, and its horrible descendant fanaticism have long possessed this beautiful earth. It has filled the earth with violence, drenched it often and often with human gore, destroyed civilization and sent whole nations into despair. But its time has come, 
and I fervently believe that the bell that tolled this morning in honor of the representatives of the different religions of the earth in this parliament assembled is the death knell to all fanaticism, that it is the death knell to all persecution with the sword or the pen, and to all uncharitable feelings between brethren wending their way to the same goal, but through different ways. The newspapers called Swamiji a, an orator by divine right. Without any uh, notes, without any preparation, he bowed down to Mother Saraswati and he delivered this very powerful and beautiful message. And of course there was thundering applause. It was punctuated by applause throughout and at the end thundering applause. Swami Vivekananda addressed the parliament 12 separate times. Unfortunately, only six of those do we have any record and often uh, an incomplete record of what he said. He was easily the most popular speaker and the organizers of the different sessions of the parliament uh, understood that uh, if they kept him for the last, they could keep the audience. <laughs> the, the, they would find that the, the, these different papers would be presented, some of them very long and dry and dull, and people would begin to get up. So the organizers would say uh, that Swami Vivekananda is to address the parliament at the end of the day. And people would sit back down, they would wait, they would sit through uh, long lectures in the heat just to get a few minutes from Swamiji's lips. So on September 19, he delivered his paper on Hinduism. Sister Niverita writes something remarkable about this. She writes, of the Swami's address before the Parliament of Religions, it may be said that when he began to speak, it was of the religious ideas of the Hindus. But when he ended, Hinduism had been created. It was no experience of his own that rose to the lips of the Swami Vivekananda there. He did not even take advantage of the occasion to tell the story of his master. Instead of either of these, it was the religious consciousness of India that spoke through him, the message of his whole people as determined by their whole past. And as he spoke, in the youth and noonday of the West, a nation sleeping in the shadows of the darkened half of earth on the far side of the Pacific, waited in spirit for the words that would be born on the dawn that was traveling towards them to reveal to them the secret of their own greatness and strength. In this address, in this paper, he sets forth in clear and simple language the essence of what is called Hinduism. We hear the echoes of his master, Sri Ramakrishna, in these teachings. And we find that already his message is well developed. Already the themes which he will discuss and in much greater depth later in his different lecture tours and classes, we find that most of these themes he introduces in this paper. So it's a very worthwhile study. Mary Louise Burke, also known as Sister Gargi, who did a lot of extensive study on Swami Vivekananda in America, uh, wrote about this talk. In this stunning talk, Swamiji gave coherence and unity to the bewildering number of sects and beliefs that through untold ages have gathered and flowered under the name of Hinduism. He revealed the lofty philosophy and aspiration, the great religious goal and drive, the central beliefs common to each widely divergent sect. He made it all not only clear, but supremely inspiring, a living religion springing eternally from the very soul of humanity itself. The report was that the Hall of Columbus, in which the paper was uh, delivered, could not accommodate all who endeavored to gain admittance. So it would have been crammed with well over 4,000 people, I imagine. And, of course, in those days, there was no such thing as 
microphones and all that. Before he began his presentation, he prefaced his remarks, he prefaced it with some remarks about the missionaries. There was some debate had turned a little nasty in the uh, days of the parliament about missionaries describing the terrible iniquities of Asian religions and the Asians uh, firing back that uh, it was the missionaries who were full of iniquity and all that kind of thing. So it was going on like that. And so Swamiji felt that before he was to address, the, uh, give, to deliver his paper, he needed to address that. And he said, We who have come from the East have sat here day after day and have been told in a patronizing way that we ought to accept Christianity because Christian nations are the most prosperous. We look about us and we see England, the most prosperous Christian nation in the world, with her foot on the neck of 250 million Asiatics. We look back into history and see that the prosperity of Christian Europe began with Spain. Spain's prosperity began with the invasion of Mexico. Christianity wins its prosperity by cutting the throats of its fellow men. At such a price, the Hindu will not have prosperity. It's incredible boldness that he had to speak like that in a Christian country where missionaries are everywhere bad-mouthing. To speak like that is just amazing, amazing. So now I'd like to look at some parts of this paper on Hinduism. Then Swamiji began by noting the vast variety within Hinduism or within Sanatana Dharma. Mostly I'll be reading quotes from Swamiji. From the high spiritual flights of the Vedanta philosophy, of which the latest discoveries of science seem like echoes, to the low ideas of idolatry with its multifarious mythology, the agnosticism of the Buddhists, and the atheism of the Jains, each and all have a place in the Hindu's religion. Where then, the question arises, where is the common center to which all these widely diverging radii converge? Where is the common basis upon which all these seemingly hopeless contradictions rest? And this is the question I shall attempt to answer. It's interesting that he includes the agnosticism of the Buddhist and the atheism of the Jain within the Hindu's religion. And Swamiji never felt that Buddha was someone outside the Sanatana Dharma. Hinduism was often described as a congeries of faiths, and I think it's a legitimate description. A congeries, a, a great gathering of different faiths, because the diversity is so great. But behind that variety, within that variety, there is a unity, and this is what Swamiji will attempt to address. He begins then, after this, he, he raises the question, Who am I? Here I stand, and if I shut my eyes and tried to conceive my existence. I, I, I. What is the idea before me? The idea of a body. Am I then nothing but a combination of material substances? The Vedas declare, no, I am a spirit living in a body. I am not the body. The body will die, but I will not die. Then he brings in the famous quote from the Gita. The Hindu believes that he is a spirit. Him the sword cannot pierce. Him the fire cannot burn. Him the water cannot melt. Him the air cannot dry. Nor is the soul bound by the conditions of matter. In its very essence it is free, unbounded, holy, pure and perfect. But somehow or other, it finds itself tied down to matter and thinks of itself as matter. Then Swamiji asks the question, why is this? This is the age-old question, really. Why this universe? 
Why am I here? If I am a spirit, why do I think I am a body? He says, Why should the free, perfect, and pure being be thus under the thraldom of matter is the next question. How can the perfect soul be deluded into the belief that it is imperfect? How can the perfect become the quasi-perfect? How can the pure, the absolute, change even a microscopic particle of its nature? But the Hindu is sincere. He does not want to take shelter under sophistry. He is brave enough to face the question in a manly fashion, and his answer is, I do not know. I do not know how the perfect being, the soul, came to think of itself as imperfect, as joined to and conditioned by matter. The doctrine of Maya, which is often used to explain how, how we think of the the infinite as finite is actually just the same thing. It is an explanation that says, I do not know. Swamiji will explain later in his Jnana Yoga lectures that Maya is not a theory for the explanation of the world. It is simply a statement of facts as they are, that the very basis of our being is contradiction. Then comes the great passage, the lightning bolt, the bomb-throwing, Swamiji used to call it. I'm throwing some bombs. He's throwing lots of bombs in this lecture, breaking up the uh, ideas of those who are present. But here is another question. Is man a tiny boat in a tempest, raised one moment on the foamy crest of a billow, and dashed down into a yawning chasm the next, rolling to and fro at the mercy of good and bad actions, a powerless, helpless wreck in an ever-raging, ever-rushing, uncompromising current of cause and effect, a little moth placed under the wheel of causation, which rolls on, crushing everything in its way, and waits not for the widow's tears or the orphan's cry. The heart sinks at the idea, Yet this is the law of nature. Is there no hope? Is there no escape? Was the cry that went up from the bottom of the heart of despair. It reached the throne of mercy, and words of hope and consolation came down and inspired a Vedic sage, and he stood up before the world and in trumpet voice proclaimed the glad tidings. Hear, ye children of immortal bliss, even ye that reside in higher spheres, I have found the Ancient One who is beyond all darkness, all delusion. Knowing Him alone, you shall be saved from death over again. Children of immortal bliss, what a sweet, what a hopeful name. Allow me to call you, brethren, by that sweet name, heirs of immortal bliss. Yea, the Hindu refuses to call you sinners. Ye are the children of God, the sharers of immortal bliss, holy and perfect beings, ye divinities on earth, sinners. It is a sin to call a man so. It is a standing libel on human nature. Come up, O lions, and shake off the delusion that you are sheep. You are souls immortal, spirits free, blessed and eternal. Ye are not matter, ye are not bodies. Matter is your servant, not you the servant of matter. his beautiful translation of the Svetashvata Upanishad. I'd just like to chant those verses. Shrinvantu Vishve Amritasya Putraha Aye Dhamani Divyani Tastuhu Vedahame Tam Purusham Mahantam Aditya Varnam Tamasaf Parastat Tameva viditvati mrityumeti nanyaf pantha vidyate anaya. William Ernest Hawking was a philosopher uh, who attended the Parliament of Religions when he was 20 years old. And I'd like to read uh, 
his reminiscence, what he remembers of Swamiji's address is this very passage. I'd like to just read that out. There was a passage toward the end. In fact, it wasn't toward the end. It was right in the middle. There was a passage toward the end in which I can still hear the ring of his voice and feel the silence of the crowd, almost as if shocked. The audience was well mixed, but could be taken as one in assuming that there had been a fall of man resulting in a state of original sin, such that all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But what is the speaker saying? I hear his emphatic rebuke. Call men sinners. It is a sin to call men sinners. Through the silence, I felt something like a gasp running through the hall as the audience waited for the affirmation which must follow this blow. His following words carried the message that in all men there is that divine essence, undivided and eternal. Reality is one, and that one, which is Brahman, constitutes the central being of each one of us. For me, this doctrine was a startling departure from anything which my scientific psychology could then recognize. What I could feel and understand was that this man was speaking from what he knew, not from what he had been told. I think we can gather that it was not only William Ernest Hawking who was profoundly affected by this message of hope of Swamiji's. And we can remember that when Swamiji was speaking, he was not just lecturing, he was not just delivering words. His very personality was, uh, it, it was, was transmitting spirituality to those who were in that hall. It wasn't a matter of hearing his words alone, but being uplifted by his presence, by the power which he infused into the hearts of all. Swamiji touches on many other points in this lecture. We won't have time to go into all of them. But he deals, he also touches on devotion, the bhakti yoga, love for love's sake. And then he ties the, what is the goal of Hinduism? What is the, the goal is freedom. This is Swamiji. The Vedas teach that the soul is divine, only held in the bondage of matter. Perfection will be reached when this bond will burst, and the word they use for it is therefore mukti, freedom, freedom from the bonds of imperfection, freedom from death and misery. And this bondage can only fall off through the mercy of God, and this mercy comes on the pure. So purity is the condition of his mercy. How does that mercy act? He reveals himself to the pure heart. The pure and the stainless see God, yea, in this very life. Then, and then only, all the crookedness of the heart is made straight. Then all doubt ceases. This is the very center, the very vital conception of Hinduism. So here we find that Swamiji is bringing all the different sects and faiths, as it were, to this one point, this idea of the direct experience of the divine. It's not a matter of believing, but a matter of realizing, of attaining freedom, of attaining mukti. And how much Swamiji loved freedom. His speeches, his letters, his poems are all full of this idea of freedom. He wrote, liberty, mukti is all my religion. And everything that tries to curb it, I will avoid by fight or flight. He continues, The Hindu does not want to live upon words and theories. If there are existences beyond the ordinary sensuous existence, he wants to come face to face with them. If there is a soul in him which is not matter, if there is an all-merciful universal soul, he will go to him direct. He must see him and that alone can destroy all doubts. So, the best proof a Hindu sage gives about the soul, about God, is, I have seen the soul, 
I have seen God. The Hindu religion does not consist in struggles and attempts to believe a certain doctrine or dogma, but in realizing, not in believing, but in being and becoming. Thus, the whole object of their system is by constant struggle to become perfect, to become divine, to reach God and see God, and this reaching God, seeing God, becoming perfect even as the Father in heaven is perfect, constitutes the religion of the Hindus. We hear here, of course, the echoes of uh, Sri Ramakrishna and uh, remember how the first question Narendra, the future Vivekananda, asked Sri Ramakrishna was, Sir, have you seen God? And Sri Ramakrishna answered, Yes, I see God more clearly than I see you before me. And what is more, I can show him to you. It's also interesting to note how much uh, biblical language is found in Swamiji's lectures when he was lecturing in America. He used a lot of the language that was found in the Bible because that was the language that was familiar to his hearers. So here this be becoming perfect even as the Father in heaven is perfect. This is one of the teachings of Jesus. So he used all these. So this is almost the last word we can say that the becoming perfect even as the Father in heaven is perfect. But for Swamiji, the last word actually is Advaita, non-dualism. He says, perfection is absolute, and the absolute cannot be two or three. It cannot have any qualities. It cannot be an individual. And so, when a soul becomes perfect and absolute, it must become one with Brahman, and it would only realize the Lord as the perfection, the reality of its own nature and existence, the existence absolute, knowledge absolute, and bliss absolute. We have often and often read this called the losing of individuality and becoming a stock or stone. He jests at scars that never felt a wound. I tell you, it is nothing of the kind, If it is happiness to enjoy the consciousness of this small body, it must be greater happiness to enjoy the consciousness of two bodies, the measure of happiness increasing with the consciousness of an increasing number of bodies, the aim, the ultimate of happiness being reached when it would become a universal consciousness. Therefore, to gain this infinite universal individuality, this miserable little prison individuality must go. Then alone can death cease when I am one with life. Then alone can misery cease when I am one with happiness itself. Then alone can all errors cease when I am one with knowledge itself. It's a common misunderstanding of Advaita, which Swamiji often cautioned against, this idea that attaining the state of non-duality is somehow a losing of our individuality. He would say, no, you are not individuals yet. It is when you attain that realization that you, become, that you realize your true individuality. Before closing his paper, Swamiji touches on a number of other points on the idea of the, the question of polytheism, explaining that, that actually there is no polytheism in India, how we move from error to truth, not from error to truth, but from lower truth to higher truth. And uh, he closes with the idea of the harmony of religions and universal religion, the idea of a universal religion, which he spoke of on several occasions. The idea of universal religion at that time was the idea that there is one religion which will become the universal religion, namely Christianity. Christianity will prove to be the universal religion and all people finally will become Christians. And this is the uh, idea of my religion alone is true and everyone else is wrong. But Swamiji had a different idea of universal religion. So I'd like to close uh, today's discussion with a this 
last two paragraphs in which he uh, discusses this um, universal religion as he sees it, which is something all-embracing and all-encompassing. And after that, we may have just a moment of silence. To the Hindu, then, the whole world of religions is only a traveling, a coming up of different men and women through various conditions and circumstances to the same goal. Every religion is only evolving a god out of the material man, and the same god is the inspirer of all of them. Why, then, are there so many contradictions? They are only apparent, says the Hindu. The contradictions come from the same truth adapting itself to the varying circumstances of different natures. It is the same light coming through glasses of different colors. If there ever is to be a universal religion, it must be one which will have no location in place or time, which will be infinite like the God it will preach, and whose sun will shine upon the followers of Krishna and of Christ, on saints and sinners alike, which will not be Brahminic or Buddhistic, Christian or Mohammedan, but the sum total of all these, and still have infinite space for development, which, in its Catholicity, will embrace in its infinite arms and find a place for every human being, from the lowest groveling savage not far removed from the brute to the highest man towering by the virtues of his head and heart almost above humanity, making society stand in awe of him and doubt his human nature. It will be a religion which will have no place for persecution or intolerance in its polity, which will recognize divinity in every man and woman, and whose whole scope, whose whole force, will be created in aiding humanity to realize its own true divine nature. Om Namah Shri Rajaya Vivekananda Suraye Sajjit Sukhasvarupaya Swamine Tapaharine Kayena Vachamana Sendriyerva Buddhyatmana Vaprakite Svabhava Karome Yadyat Sakalam Parasmai Narayanayeti Samarpayami Om Shanti 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 Salutations to that king of renouncers and controller of passions, the sage Vivekananda, who is Satchitananda, existence, consciousness, bliss, absolute, the spiritual preceptor, the remover of distress. Whatever we do through our body, speech, mind, senses, intellect, soul, or through innate natural tendencies, all that we dedicate as an offering to the Supreme Lord. Om, peace, peace, peace.